So it's kind of funny. I've been the stay-at-home dad, cook, cleaner, launderer, shopper, everything, for almost eight years now since we moved here to Regina. If you ask anybody in my family or anybody who's ever been over to our house for supper before, they'll confirm, like, I know my way around the kitchen quite well, thank you very much, and I enjoy what it is that I do. Like I was talking with Jen the other week, I said, you know what, I, I really want to make supper tonight, but I'm tired and I think we might have to order. And she said, I don't think I have ever thought that sentence in my entire life, wanting to cook, but feeling forced to order. Now, that said, nearly every cashier at the grocery store I go to treats me like a lost puppy when I buy groceries for supper every day. Right? There's times that I felt like saying, you see me here five days a week, every morning at 8 a.m., and still you talk down to me like I might mistake an English cucumber for a watermelon if you don't double-check the list for me when I come through the till. Because even with as comfortable as I am in the kitchen now, there's still this dark corner of a utensil drawer just underneath the microwave filled with things of dubious purpose. Like, what on earth is that? Any idea? What is it? I learned a thing. Because it's not a scoop. There is no bowl to it. Like, it would just fall off the sides. It's not a server item, I don't think, because the little nubs all over it keep stuff from effectively sliding off without getting lacerated all the way along. And like when I was thinking about it and looking about it throughout the week, I thought, you know what? Maybe it's some kind of weird punishment paddle from the 70s, right? But it seems too small for that. And frankly, too old to wind up in our drawer of lost and mischievous things. So I haven't had the courage to throw it out yet for fear that someday it might be of some use to somebody. But I think all too often people think about their faith in Jesus and how to talk about it to others in the same kind of thing as this ridiculous white kitchen thing. Feeling like, I should know what to do with this. It's in my kitchen after all, but I'm kind of embarrassed and I have no idea what to do with it. So I'll just hide it in the back corner of this drawer over here. Does that sound or feel familiar? It's like, I've lived that truth. So as we look at this passage from Acts 3 this morning, how do we share Jesus with others in a useful way that actually works? Because Peter and the early Acts church make it seem ridiculously easy, right? Peter gets up, he talks for five minutes, 3,000 people get baptized, and they move on with life. Like, if you're a pastor, there are quick ways to feel insufficient really fast, and even if you're not, you look at that and you think, how did it work so easily for them? And it seems like such a struggle to even get the words out of my mouth if I'm thinking about telling somebody about Jesus in my natural life. Because there's some people who just seem natural at it, right? We've probably known some of those people if you've spent time in the church. And for some, it's a gift. And fair enough, I am thankful for them. Others of us think that we're really natural at it, but we're actually just really pushy. Others think they can't do it, and so they wind up doing nothing. 
And I'm here to offer you the idea that maybe neither of those are particularly helpful. And we could actually do a whole lot better at it if we think about it as a church. All too often, pastors are thought of as being nice guys. That's never really been me. (laughs) I've got a lot more of the prophet running away from a stoning in me than I do the warm caregiver type in me. But even in caring for people, sometimes hard truths are difficult to talk about but need to be spoken out loud. So I was watching cartoons with the boys the other week and uh, came across this wonderful word. Raven, from the show Teen Titans Go, puts it, sometimes you have to be neen. It's a ridiculous show I watch with my boys we enjoy together. But neen is a little bit nice and a little bit mean because somebody has to say it or dumb stuff is going to happen. Too many Christians are like this green thing here. Do we have that? Yeah. Too many Christians are like this green thing here when they think about how to share Jesus. It's confusing. Nobody really knows how to make it work, it seems, to the point that it's useless sometimes. And you're pretty sure if you just try to do something with it, somebody's going to lose a finger. Like, what on earth is this thing even, right? But it lives in my drawer, and I haven't gotten rid of it yet. It's kind of terrifying when you look at it the wrong way. What is made better by this? Whose existence is blessed by this thing? If we can't answer that question effectively about how we share Jesus, we've got problems. So how do we share Jesus with others in a way that's useful and actually works? I think sharing about Jesus effectively starts with being present to the people in the world that we're living in. It's written in Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 that one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, and Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Now, anytime that you're teaching in a church from a narrative or a story like this, you have to be pretty careful to try and work with the spirit of the story and not really the story of the story if that means anything to you. Because doing exactly what the folks in Acts did and trying to just transpose it now here isn't the point of the story. The thing that we can take away from stories like this, though, is what was God doing in their midst? What were they doing that was useful? And then what can we do as a result of learning from them? You don't have to go to pray at the temple every day at 3 p.m. to share Jesus. Not the point. If you look at the attitude here, though, of Peter, it's interesting to notice how he handled himself when he was going to the temple and saw this man. He was tuned in to the people around him and what was going on in his midst. 
Because it would be easy for an important guy like him, one of Jesus' best friends who had wandered the countryside, see everything with him, heard all his teaching, an important guy like him who hung out with Jesus to think he's too busy to deal with street urchins and beggars. He has important Jesus stuff to take care of as the most important bearded guy in the disciples now, right? But what he and the early church figured out and what they realized and lived was that the street urchins and beggars were the important Jesus stuff that needed to get handled and dealt with. Peter was present to the world he lived in and the people that he encountered rather than being too busy or distracted to be bothered by them. So take time to relate to the people you encounter instead of just being busy. It's written in verses 3 to 5 that when Peter and John were about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. And it's kind of a funny phrase as I've read through it a few times in the beginning of this story. It says the man was put there at the gate of the temple every day. Now it's hard to say whether he was put there by friends so he could make enough money to survive, or if maybe he was placed there by people as a sympathetic figure looking to make money off of him. We don't know this man's story for sure. Either way, this man was a regular fixture at the temple gate. He had been there before. People knew to expect him. Folks saw him every day, and it seemed his life never changed, because every day, he was put there. Peter and John had likely seen this man a lot of times before. But when this regular fixture of the temple scenery called out to them in the middle of their way to do really holy stuff, what was their reaction? They stopped, they looked straight at him, and they talked with him. Like, that's kind of unique and special. It shouldn't be unique and special, but as North Americans, that's pretty unique and special. Because what's the usual reaction if you see beggars in front of Walmart? You look away. You pretend you didn't see them, you ignore your words, you talk to somebody who's beside you, you walk quickly and look down at your feet in the other direction. It's uncomfortable to notice suffering as North Americans. It can be convicting to us to not give when we're asked. And sometimes the people don't look or smell nice like we'd like them to. But Peter and John, they stopped and gave this man their full attention. And in that process, became the presence of Jesus to that man where he was. Do you know how absolutely weird and inhuman it is to live the way that we do now in North America and most of Western culture? Like, that is what you see anytime you go anywhere, right? Any time that there is empty space in our lives, we fill it with a screen instead of a person. And that kind of thing would be unthinkable even 15 years ago. And that's not a long time. Did you know people used to actually talk to each other in waiting rooms? 
right? Unreal, stranger danger. I'd never talk to a stranger. Except for the fact that like for tens and hundreds of thousands of years, we were good with that. Have you ever considered turning off your phone when you're waiting somewhere and just listening or talking to the people around you? Radical shift, right? Crazy talk. Who let me have a microphone this morning? Like just talking to a human beside you and seeing what happens and where it goes. Or maybe stopping and talking to the beggar out front of Walmart, learn their name, shake their hand, and buy them lunch. Like for real. Did you know people actually do that? Crazy. The difference that that can make is immeasurable, not only for their life, but for the work of the kingdom of God. Probably even more life-changing than you finishing your wordle. Right? Like, this would be unbelievable. Because in Christ, God came to be present with us. And it's through us that Jesus becomes present to the people that we encounter. So learn and take the time to be present. And in the process, be used by the Spirit to become God's presence. And then meet the needs that you can see that God has enabled you to. It's written in verses 6 to 11. That then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And he jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, like, Peter was not a rich man. At least certainly not after dropping everything to go follow Jesus roaming around the countryside for three and a half years. Peter didn't worry about what he didn't have, though, and what he couldn't do, because he was simply present to those around him and lived like the good Samaritan that Jesus taught him about. Peter knew that his neighbor, as Jesus told the story, was any person he could see whose need he could meet. This man was asking for money that day, but it was pretty clear from anybody who had seen him before, there's something he'd like a whole lot more than money, but he didn't think he could possibly ask for that. Peter didn't worry about not having money to give him that day, but instead stopped and was present with him and brought the presence of Christ into that man's life through being present. He didn't sweat not having everything, because he knew he could offer what mattered most. And I think way too often we don't reach out, we don't make contact, we don't interact, because we feel overwhelmed and inadequate to try and fix everything. Being a useful Jesus follower isn't about having riches or skills, but instead choosing to just be present and offering the presence of Christ to those we interact with as the Spirit empowers us to do so as his people. 
Now, we have made a point as our family to be present to people around us where we can and to give wherever we see needs. That's like one of our family's biggest values. Anytime we see somebody where we're walking by, we're going to stop, we're going to get a name, we're going to pray, and we're going to give. We keep gift cards to like McDonald's and Tim Hortons in the console of the van. So that when you see that guy on the corner of Ring Road as you're making your left-hand turn asking for money, there's gift cards to give, right? We have the resources that we can help. I remember one time we were on family vacation in Winnipeg. And we were going into Shoppers Mall because the boys had finally earned getting a PlayStation. We went in, we bought the PlayStation, we were on the way out, and there was a man out front there, and he was in need. And we stopped with our family, and we said hi. We learned his name. We figured out what it was that he needed, and then we took him back into the mall to make sure he got it. You know what? That's life-changing for him, life-changing for me, and how do you think kids learn and grow up to be kind, gracious, loving Jesus people? By learning to do it from the beginning, right? But there's no better way to start than now. You don't have to save the world. Jesus took care of that. But you have to be the presence of God and love the one that you're with. See the needs around you and love them with the love of God. Thoughts and prayers, when we can do real things, aren't enough. It's written in verses 6 and 7 that Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. When Peter saw the man in need, he didn't just offer kind sentiments. He didn't just pray for the man and leave him to his own devices thinking, man, I really hope it gets better for that guy. When Peter saw a need that he could meet through the power of God's spirit alive and active in him, he acted as the answer to his own prayers and actually helped somebody in the name of Jesus. Now, in the last decade or so, offering thoughts and prayers on social media has become the standard response of Christians to crisis. So much so that it's become the satirical retort of those opposed to Christianity, or at least those tired of its hypocrisy. Now, thoughts and prayers are fine as a starting point, but they are grossly insufficient when we are actually equipped to answer those prayers too. Sometimes they're all that we have and all we're capable of, and that's fair. But meeting a need we can see in the name of Jesus and his kingdom is a cop-out if we don't do it. Now, this is not to say that Jesus' followers step into the place of God and don't need God to answer prayers and do ministry. Far from it. Rather, it's saying God has already equipped the church and its people to do the ministry that God has called them to. And they probably need to spend as much time, or more, actually ministering out of their relative wealth of time and resources, and not just pray and move on. By all means, we should pray without ceasing, but then let's do something about it where we're able to and equipped to by God. When I was pastoring in Brandon, back what seems like a lifetime ago now, there was major flooding in Minot, North Dakota, 
back around 2011 that was a couple hours south of our church. And because we were so close to the border, we were used to going to Minot for groceries regularly. Full neighborhoods were basically washed out and ruined. We spent a lot of time praying for them as a church. We took up collections for them of money as a church. But beyond that, we actually put together teams of people that went down weekly for over a year to help muck out and repair houses with resources from people from our church and sent skilled or willing people from our congregation to actually go do the work in the name of Jesus, being the tangible presence of God to them, whether they were expecting it or not. Because that's what being effective Jesus people is really all about. Sharing Jesus in a useful way involves being present to those around us and meeting the needs that we see through the power of the Spirit alive and active in us. Faithful loving of others brings God's presence into their midst. It's written in verses 8 to 11 that they went with him into the temple courts, walking, jumping, and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. The most effective evangelism in the world is someone whose life has been loved and changed by Jesus' people and their encounter with God's presence through them. It's not about well-polished presentations or knowing the right arguments to use. It's about people having encountered the person of Jesus through his faithful people and their lives being changed as a result of it. Being present to those around us in the name of Jesus and loving them out of the love that God has shown for us is what effective Jesus followers are really all about. Because if we do that and are the loving presence of Christ to people, it causes those who are ministered to feel loved and be known. It says he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now, this dude's reaction is way more effective preaching and evangelism and spreading the gospel than the best sermon I have ever put together, you guys. And it's not close. And it's interesting, too, kind of how Peter's sermon was really only effective because of this man's reaction to being loved and cared for. It starts with loving other people and caring for them genuinely out of the love that God has shown us. And that opens up the chance that somebody might actually want to hear some words for us, too, to explain what's going on. Not the other way around. Jesus' encounters with people almost always started with him meeting their needs tangibly before moving on to the many messages behind it. Being effective Jesus followers starts with love, not preaching. And love is at the heart of the message of the kingdom of God. Because if there's one parenting pro tip I can pass on to you this morning, it's this hug the crying kid. Hug the crying kid before you try and teach them what they did wrong that wound them up hurting where they are. You don't need to fully understand what went wrong. They don't need to fully understand what they did wrong. There can be time to figure all that out in the long run. Just hug the crying kid and see where it goes. 
Work out the rest when the crying is over. When it comes to teaching about Jesus, the lesson is exactly the same. Care for the needs of the hurting one before you try and tell them what they did wrong to get themselves there. Bring them the loving presence of Jesus into their place of need and see what it changes and how it heals hearts. Because not only that, but it grows interest in those around them to what God is actually doing in their midst. It says when all these people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the temple called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, while the man held on to Peter and John, the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Like, the people around them knew who this man was. He wasn't a stranger. He wasn't a weirdo. They had seen that guy at the gate every day forever. They knew that he was not the mobile, jumping, walking, praising type. This was new and different. People today really aren't that much different. And when they see things that don't line up with their current expectation of reality, it gets their attention. I can say with all conviction that at no point have I ever prayed for healing for a crippled person and seen them immediately walking again. I have, though, seen people get mighty interested and curious when Christians act unexpectedly generous and gracious in a culture that is literally hell-bent on hoarding resources and getting vengeance. We don't even have to heal the unhealable anymore to draw attention when so little is expected of Christians anymore, because the culture just assumes Jesus' people are identical to them, but with a Jesus fish bumper sticker ornament. And that's pretty sad, frankly. Try being unnaturally present in a culture that's run off its feet busy. Try being generous in a culture that looks primarily for itself. Try being gracious in a culture that would see its enemies destroyed instead of forgiven. And you, my friends, will find yourself drawing attention to Jesus in ways you never expected possible. Sharing Jesus in a useful way involves being present to those around us and meeting the needs that we see through the power of the Spirit alive and active in us. Sharing about Jesus effectively means speaking into the lives of others that we are present with. Like, if we know Peter at all, we know he was never short on words. You don't have to be Peter. But what often holds people back from saying something is that they think they don't know what to say. Well, I'll offer you this. If you don't know what to say, like, learn what to say. Instead of being content with saying nothing. Because you've got a whole staff of people here at the church who would be glad to go out with you anytime you want and talk about what is it that we should say? What is it that we believe? What is it that we have to share? You don't need a master's in theology degree to know what you believe or be conversant enough to explain it to someone else. Because if we take a look at Peter's message, there's a couple pointers I think we can take away from it. Like, not full chunks of the thing to repeat and regurgitate to others, because oddly enough, 2,000 years tends to change the means and methods of messaging. If we talk the way about Jesus 2,000 years later to Canadians and think it's not 
materially different than how Peter did it to Greeks and Jews two millennia ago, that's probably a problem. The focus of the message, though, is on God's, not our goodness. It's written in verses 12 to 18 that when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him up from the dead. We're all witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see, who you know was made strong, it's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. When Peter got to preaching, he was speaking to people who had literally been there at the foot of Jesus' cross during his execution. It was quite personal for Peter. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was their God, and they did literally and personally hand over Jesus to be executed. Even after all that, though, Peter moves on to God's love and grace pretty quickly. He didn't stick around and belabor the point of their awfulness. He didn't try to guilt them into hating themselves. The gospel, Jesus' message, is about good news, not an encouragement towards self-loathing. He also immediately moved on from what he and John had done for this man to be sure that the people knew that it was about the goodness of God and not the goodness of themselves. Loving others and offering the presence of Jesus to them is about offering them Jesus not offering them ourselves. So much of what passes for good deeds these days is really just posturing and virtual signaling for people's media and corporations' social media accounts. If in the process of reaching out to love others, you're thinking about how best you can share this experience on your Instagram, then please stop, pray, and give your collective head a shake because that's not what it's about. It's not about us. It's about God and his love and his goodness. Loving others is about offering Jesus' presence to them for their benefit and God's glory, not our own. Jesus' own message on the subject of giving and caring for others from Matthew 6 was, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others so as to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you see the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Instead, just be present. Love. Be generous. Be kind. And do it for the good of others and the glory of God, not our own reputation. Because that's what's really at the heart of the message of Jesus. The message is about turning away from other things and turning towards Jesus as our hope. 
Peter told them in verses 19 to 26, Repent then and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time that God comes to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like from among your people, and you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken and foretold these things. And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, here's where things can get a little bit complicated for us for non-Jewish Jesus followers that no longer reside in the Roman world 2,000 years later. Peter's audience knew exactly what the terms sin, Messiah, prophets, Samuel, heirs of the covenant, Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, and all these kind of things. They knew what that meant. This was natural to them. All these ideas made sense to them in their brains because they were born and raised in a culture and forged their identities and understandings of the world through these very ideas. How many of your friends and co-workers could say the same? Do you think if I spoke these exact same words to your friends or co-workers, we would get 3,000 people added to the church tomorrow? If your answer is no, like why? Because I think it's kind of apparent to all of us, but we're not sure if we're allowed to be comfortable with that. Because the answer is pretty clearly no, I think. The issue is that in different cultures, different understandings of the world and the self exist. And it's okay to preach the message differently in different times and different places to different people. What remains the same is the call to stop trying to find meaning, hope, and fulfillment in other things, and instead find your identity and meaning in Jesus as Lord. That, though, might mean that the message sounds quite a bit different in different times at different places and different people. For 1,500 years in the Western Christianized world, we've opened the conversation about Jesus with people with something like, you are evil, Jesus came to die for your sins, you need to pray for forgiveness, and then you can go to heaven instead of hell to escape your just punishment. And I'd like to offer you this morning that that's not in fact the fullness of the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim. We are going to be going through a book called The King Jesus Gospel, by Scott McKnight, starting in a few weeks in ADC and expanding on some of these ideas further. The short version is that while the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are a big part of the story, they aren't the beginning of the gospel or the end of the gospel and don't necessarily need to be the starting point for everybody in hearing the gospel. The real message of the gospel is that Jesus is the rightful king over all. 
over all time and creation, and it's through giving allegiance to him over all other people and things that the world is brought to the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. Now, when some of our Mennonite missionaries first started going to some Eastern cultures, they had a lot of difficulty in preaching the message of sin and repentance because their cultures weren't based on legal understandings of what is good like ours is. And instead, their cultural understandings of good and evil were based on shame and honor. Now, there's a wonderful book written by Mark Baker called Proclaiming the Scandal of the Cross that goes through a lot of these things. But when our missionaries realized they could teach that Jesus came to remove people's shame and give them a place of honor with God instead if they turned their allegiance over to Jesus, it changed the game completely. It's not a different gospel. It's just a different frame of reference that actually made sense. Because if we as Western Christians in Canada, in the 21st century were to determine what the frame of reference is for our friends and neighbors, what people need to hear and see, and what Jesus calls their allegiance from and towards him too, what would that frame of reference look like for us? Maybe something like Jesus came to show us that life to the full comes through sacrifice and self-giving love, not through gaining material possessions. There's a conversation starter. Jesus came to offer meaning and belonging to people through his self-giving love rather than trying to construct meaning and identity based on our own self-identification. Jesus came to offer belonging in his family to those who are lonely and isolated and give them a place to belong and be loved. This is all the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just using it in a way that actually makes sense to people. I think we could get pretty creative in how we preach Jesus while still preaching Jesus' gospel if we're able to get past our own preconceived notions of what that gospel message is supposed to look like. Let's be present. Let's listen to people's needs and questions before we try and offer them the answers we think they need. Sharing Jesus in a useful way involves being present to those around us and meeting the needs that we see through the power of the Spirit, alive and active in his people. As Jesus' people, we're called to bring the presence of Christ into the lives of all those we meet. Just loving like Jesus did. Offering grace like Jesus did. And meeting people's needs through what he's blessed us with physical needs, just like Jesus did, and then calling those people to leave behind their allegiance to all other people and things and to take what Jesus has offered them instead. I think that's some good news that we can all get on board with and share with a world that needs his love now probably as much or more than ever. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that in you we find a love that crosses over all boundaries, that knows no limits, that isn't constrained by time and space and cultural understandings. 
but instead knows all and reaches for all and offers to all. Love, hope, forgiveness, and purpose and meaning beyond anything else that we could possibly line ourselves up with. Jesus, we thank you that as your church, you have gifted us with your spirit to lead and guide us into these things and given us the call to be able to be ministers of that love, hope, grace, and forgiveness to the world we live in. Lord, forgive us for the times where we have come up short of the opportunities you've given us. Where we have doubted our adequacy to do your ministry. Whether we have doubted your faithfulness in coming through if we put ourselves out there. Where we've just said, it's too much or I don't know what to do and left it at that. Help us to live confidently of people of your spirit to take the opportunities you bless us with as opportunities to be a blessing to those we live with. Give us confidence through your spirit to love and act as ministers of your hope and grace and do so out of the confidence in your wealth and riches that know no bounds. Lord, you have blessed us with so much. And I pray that you'd help us to be a blessing, just as you promised your people would be all the way back through Abraham. And that through being present, through the gift of your spirit, that the world would come to see Jesus in a new and fresh way as we humble ourselves before you and just offer you who we are. Lord, do your good work in and through us, we pray. Amen.